1: Hello everyone. Today I have Dr. Sandeep Benerji with me. He is associate professor at McGill University in Canada. He joins me today to talk about his book, Space, Utopia and Decolonization. Literary pre- Prefigurations of the Post-Colony published with Rutledge. Uh, as always, I'd like to begin with the beginning, Dr. Benerji. How did this book come to me? What is the genesis of this book?
2: Thank you Gargi for having this conversation with me. Um, so a version of this book began as a PhD dissertation, but the book looks uh, very different from where I started out. Uh, so the book began as in my interest in the spatial humanities, I guess, the production of space uh, and, its, and how decolonization was also a space making process. That. And uh, my dissertation looked at, you know, how landscapes r- landscape representations were used to uh, think about the post-colony of India, right? So before uh, before the, the nation, as it were, gets congealed under particularly Gandhian nationalism. So this that idea was uh, uh, thoroughly renovated and uh, revised in the book where I progressively got more interested in the concept of utopia and about thinking about decolonization as an actualization of utopian thought, utopian um, politics, and in some ways a failed utopianism. So it was an actualization and a failed actualization. So that tension is what I tried to think about. Um, And in this book, I've also tried to capture this idea that not all anti-colonialisms are the same are different kinds of anti-colonialisms and uh, and i tried to think that with the category of space
1: um and uh, i mean before we go to the second question which is very linked to here why um why at all is space making uh, a, an important part of decolonization process what do we understand by that
2: so when i think of space i'm thinking about theorizations of space that come to us Particularly from uh, the discipline of geography, human geographers, cultural geographers, they've thought about space in a specific way. I'm also thinking about the work of Ori Lefebvre and his production of space, Uh, but also uh, uh, Raymond Williams. Raymond Williams' Country and the City, which gives us a sense of what uh, the changing conceptions of country and city, uh, how they play out in the context of British literature and the global political economy. So those were the frameworks I had in mind. And I also wanted to engage with this idea that space is not just a backdrop or a container, but a very much active aspect of um, the lives we lead. And it becomes particularly uh, crucial to think about decolonization because, uh, you know, like Fano very famously told us that the the colonial project was a world divided into Compartments. Now, this also, uh, you know, because of colonial capitalist modernity, the world gets produced in a certain way. We have core areas, uh, the metropolitan areas and the peripheral, the colonial areas, and that world system gets revised and into what we have now, the modern uh, world system of a series of nation states. Now, this transformation is a social transformation, an economic transformation is a political transformation, but it is also very much a spatial transformation. So it's kind of the remaking of the space we inhabit. So that's really what uh, kind of underwrites my book project.
1: Yeah, and I'm again trying to unpack the title, the very heavy title of of your book is, is, uh, I found it very interesting that you use the notion of utopia because I mean, in Greek, it means no place and um this is interesting to talk about when we talk about from the side of the decolonization process because it is usually talked in relation to the colonization project for example for for the white settler imagination the americas and and this and the asian spaces they were utopias in the sense they didn't exist till they came there and made something wonderful out of it so what what is the interest of talking utopia from the decolonization or the post-colonial perspective?
2: So uh, I think of utopia as an ideal, right, a desire to transform the world into a better, more just place, right? Obviously, this is not the white uh, settler colonial notion of utopia, but here I'm drawing on theorizations of utopia by uh, figures like Ernst Bloch, Ruth Levitas, and others, right? Utopia teaches us, or at least educates our desire for a better way of being and living. Now, this I've tried to think in sort of concrete historical terms. Decolonization was a utopian desire for a better way of being and living and a better space, quite literally. whether it's India, whether it's the Africa Caribbean uh, countries or or island, uh, the the colon uh, the colonized actually wanted a more egalitarian world, so they wanted a more egalitarian space. So this is very much linked to uh, to that idea. Now utopia, as you said, is no place, but it's a kind of pun. I think as a, it's a pun that combines uh, the Greek word for utopos, good place, and utopos no place so that's that's where the the pun is and uh for me as as you will see in the book i've insisted on using the word post colony rather than thinking about the indian nation so what i'm what i'm thinking about is simply the imagination of a space that is yet to come what does the world what would the world look like what would british india look like or in specific cases what would bengal look like in the Aftermath of colonization. Once we've we've transcended colonization, so that project is what I've tried to uh, illuminate. At the same time, I've also uh, brought in British perspectives to kind of uh, give a sense of a version of what you mentioned, colonial utopia. The co- for the for the colonizer, India is a certain kind of utopia, or they want to make it, remake it in their own image. And there's a contestation between two projects, if you will, of space making here. And that's that's what I'm trying to get at in my book.
1: Yeah. And parallel to this is also this uh, struggle between post colonialism and decolonialism. That, you know, I mean, for example, that, uh, from South Asia, you would, social would insist on post colonialism. And for example, that would be different, for example, in the terms, than uh, the, the Latin America because because of the categories of indigenous and, and 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 a lot of ways in which we can talk about the the what comes after the white colony. Um, do you also see this as as a struggle when you're reading Tagore or uh, Anandmat or these things, or do you think this is not something the book deals?
2: Uh, it, my book doesn't deal with it, but in the end, uh, because it's looking at one specific historical moment, it's largely focused on uh, the 19th century, and and like it, uh, the last text I take up is Tagore's memoir, which is published in the 1940s, uh, but it's basically a late. Mid-late 19th century to an early 20th century uh, book. That's that's the historical expanse it deals with. But right at the end, I actually make this point about decolonization being a process. Right? We we often think of decolonization as an event. You know, it's a handover of political power, the dismantling of the empires. Uh, rather than that, we should think of uh, decolonization very much as a process, which is about uh, transforming the political realm, but also You know, reinvigorating the economic relations and the and the cultural sphere, which would lead to what uh, Gugi famously talks about as the decolonization of the mind. And uh, in that, it's forty seven in the case of India is just one moment of a longer process. And I also hint at the fact that this utopianism of decolonization gets arrested. This is not something I elaborate on, but in the in the last chapter, uh, try to point out that it gets uh, kind of arrested in the post-colonial moment. And here I'm using post-colonial simply as a historical marker.
1: Yeah. Um, and uh, for those of people like me who are not very familiar with uh, the literary cartography, there is a notion that you use uh, not many times, which is spatial desire. I mean, I tried to do a small Google search, but I couldn't get my head around it. Can you define spatial desire for future readers?
2: So let's, um, so one thing that I've tried to do is think about, as I said, utopia in spatial terms. Utopia, uh, Ruth Levitas, Soran's block will talk about as this desire for a better way of being and living, right? but this desire for a better way of being or living is located very much in history, in space, right? In a, in a time-space coordinate. So I've tried to spatialize this idea and say that uh, to think of a better way of being and living is also to think about a better space, right? So, so that's one uh, part of the answer. The second part is taking on this idea that literature produces, if you will, uh, possible worlds right uh, we've seen this in philip sydney's idea of nature uh, nature's world is uh, made of bronze and literature produces a golden world all the way uh, much later in edward side we have this idea of the imagined geography this is what he uh, uses in in uh, orientalism his book so all of this, uh, and, and imagined geographies actually gives a kind of spatial idea. His side is interested in a specific understanding of imagined geographies. Here I'm trying to think about sp- spatial desire as a way in which uh, literature, literary texts, literary and cultural texts produce uh, ideas about uh, space, about uh, produce specific imagined geographies and how these geographies ge- how these geographies, uh, as it were, jostle in the literary field and compete with each other. Uh, so that's that's what I mean by spatial desire, something uh, that gives a spatial anchor to the idea of utopian desire.
1: Okay. Um, and um, uh, you're saying also that the aim of this book is, and I'm quoting here, is to draw out the placemaking space and the pedagogic functions of the colonial and anti-colonial texts but you're not really talking about the texts which are written for teaching are you
2: no so uh i am thinking here about you know ideas like in schiller uh, the aesthetic the idea of the aesthetic education what does literature do it gives us an aesthetic education it tells us how to be tells us you know ways of being that's what it gives us. So that's that's what I mean by the pedagogic function, you know. I'm I'm thinking here in some ways in well, what we find in the traditional humanities, literature teaches, literature moves, literature, you know, delights. And and that's the pedagogic uh, function that I have in mind, prodesse delectare movere. So and and it teaches us about space. So for instance, it teaches us by uh, uh, sometimes overtly, as you said, teaching texts, but sometimes not just by allusions, by hints, that this is what the place would be like. This is what, uh, you know, community would look like. Uh, so that's, that's what I mean by the pedagogic function of the uh, text. And it does it through aesthetics. It does it through uh, giving, by, you know, delighting us in, in giving us, you know, uh, enjoyment.
1: Uh, can you give any concrete example
2: of this? So, for instance, I, I um, use this poem by Tagore, which uh, in Bengali is called It's uh, it's uh, Most Indians know it as where the mind is without fear and the head held high, etc. I mean, just recently, Martin Sheen uh, recited the English translation at a climate action protest. So it's, for instance, that poem gives you a sense of what India should be like, ought to be like, right? It tells you, you know, though, whether uh, head is held high, the knowledge is free you know, and uh, um, human, human life is not constrained by the dreary habits of custom, right? So it gives us a possible vision of a future and a vision of a possible future at the same time. So, and, and it's not actually trying to teach us anything in, the, in an explicit sense, it's, it's structured as a prayer. This is let this be the paradise in which India may arise, so so that's that's a I think a very concrete example, a very hopeful example in my mind of uh, the image of a post-colony, the utopian image of a post-colony.
1: Yeah, and um, in in the chapters that follow, you're comparing Tagore with Kipling, and you are uh, you're you're very reading closely in the way the city is imagined or even claimed by these two writers. Um, and you say how how different this is. And how does this, even this imagination of a space can can reflect the colonization process or can it?
2: Oh, it does very certainly. So um, so if you look at the chapter that I have on Calcutta where I read Calcutta as a kind of microcosm of the larger post colony, there are two moments. One, I bring um, Mirza Ghalib um james atkinson and bhavani charan bandopadhyay together three perspectives so Gali has come to calcutta he is uh he's actually amazed by by this city and he thinks of it in in this kind of um, paradisal terms and he's in fact uh, reworking the sharashob uh, to bring in calcutta uh, there. And um, this is contrasted with James Atkinson's, you know, city of palaces idea, which is also a poem, where Calcutta is very much the second city of empire, and he's talking about how wonderful this is, right. And you see at a his, this is happening at a specific historical moment. Ghalib is very much looking at it in amazement, he's thinking about it in terms of wonder. Um, for James Atkinson it's a great space because it is the it is a little london as he calls it a city of palaces and bhavanichar and bandobas they doesn't like it he's just thinking about how you know the bengali language is getting corrupted how um you know the money flows here like you know currents so he has a very it comes from a conservative perspective but nevertheless you get three perspectives on the city which are very much uh, Uh, structured by the colonial moment at a later moment when you uh, when one comes uh, to Kipling who's writing about Calcutta in the 1880s Calcutta has gone from a city of palaces in the British imagination to this city of filth and death and poverty and all the rest of it so he talks about it as the city of uh, dreadful night you know uh, uh, and which stinks it's it's as he called it it's a it stinks of the clammy odor of blue slime that has uh, rotted twice over. And on the other hand, uh, Tagore in the forties in his memoir is talking about uh, the city he grew up in. So Tagore was born in 1860s, 1861. So 1870, 1880s, is, is he's, he's a young, young man in the cities and he's writing about his childhood. And you see there is, uh, it has very much become part of um, uh, it's, it's gone from being a colonial city to an Indian city. And in the middle, there's Bholanath Chander, who's talking about how Calcutta is this great city compared to the dying city of Delhi. So you again get three perspectives. So one of the things that I've tried to do is show how colonialism, which is a, a complex set of, you know, political economic processes, they produce perspectives that are complex and divergent. So I've tried to, as, it, as I as I use the word, constitute these texts to give us a kind of a constellation of imaginations on on um, on space, specific spatial types, if you will. Yeah.
1: And and something very uh, significant in this book is the analysis of the patriotic lyric. And um, I would like to start really from the start is how is patriotic lyric in your analysis different from other genres like like poetry or story or novel
2: so so um, i think some literary genres whether in the poetic realm or in the prosaic realm are much more deeply spatial and i think the patriotic lyric stands out from other lyrical genres by virtue of being much more invested in space. Uh, for instance, in the prosaic realm, the travelogue would be something like that, which is very obviously about space. And I've tried to uh, think about this genre, the patriotic lyric. And you know we often hear about the novel being a global genre of modernity, and so on and so forth. Uh, I've tried to argue that so is the patriotic lyric. You have this in all contexts, and uh, some Patriotic lyrics are, in a sense, first amongst equals, and they become national anthems and national songs and those kinds of things. And so uh, what I've tried to do is try to uh, unearth what was the spatial imagination of patriotic lyrics. So I look at... uh, uh, rule britannia so i begin with rule britannia i look at also uh, reginald Heber's um, sort of the, it's a christian hymn but it's kind of deeply inflected both of these deeply inflected by a kind of colonial imagination and then uh, when we come to india you have uh which is of course the first stanza is the national song of india and robin ronat's um, uh, which is the national anthem and i've tried to look at not just the bits the Indian public sings, but the entire song, uh, and uh, try to see that what was the way that these uh, lyrics imagine um, the post-colony. And uh, I've argued that they are divergent. And the other, other thing about patriotic lyrics, uh, I should say two things. One is that they're deeply performative. They are lyrics in the traditional and you know uh, normative sense of the word. They are sung. Uh, and uh, and so therefore they're deeply performative. In, in they actually uh, make you participate in the processes uh, in a bodily way, right? And when it becomes a national anthem, you're supposed to stand up and all the rest of it. So um, so that's one. And it also gives us a kind of an a view of how the older form. Of literature, orature, like oral literature, kind of you kind of know lives on in um, in the in the moment of the literary when uh, literatures become less, or rather, the, uh, um, the the literary or cultural texts become less performative and um, are meant largely to be read. I guess Bollywood songs would be another great example, not of the patriotic lyric, but a way in which we have a performative. Uh, Uh, life of uh, the Lyric in our contemporary moment.
0: I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including calorie-smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Slash NBN 50 to get 50% off.
1: Yeah, and and it's interesting that you say they're very performative because this is all that has been going on in in India since BJP came. I mean, it's with particular, I mean, even with Vande Masam, there is a particular performance to it that you have to perform, stand up, and say, this is, you know, this is being Indian as of. Um, But why do they, why are they so significant for modernity?
2: Well, uh, they're significant because I think they signal a certain spatialization of our identity, right? Uh, So you you talked about India. uh, You know, no one cared before modernity about territorial identity. Identity was uh, linked to community uh, or, uh, you know, the, the local places that you belong to. So, so the world was fundamentally uh, as, as Polanzas, another uh, thinker told us, was fundamentally open, right? You could go from one place and settle in somewhere. I mean, obviously there were, there were, you know, hoops to cross, but it was just completely fine for, you know, William of Orange of Netherlands to be uh, established as the emperor of um, England. No one asked him whether, you know, uh, you're you're English. That is what changes in modernity. Uh, You have a pre-modern idea of the notion, uh, sorry, nation, and that gets codified in a sense in terms of the nation state, which is the territorial extent of the state. So there's a fundamental shift in the idea of nation and with it, the idea of belonging. And I think patriotic lyrics and by this, I mean, obviously, the modern ones, uh, give us a sense of this, that, you know, what does it mean to belong? How does one belong in, in spaces? How does the literary world negotiate uh, this uh, the trappings of identity? And it, this is exactly what we see in India in the contemporary moment, because this question of who is Indian uh, becomes uh, uh, quite, a, uh, quite a crucial issue for what of a better word.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure if, if you're comfortable talking about this, but you are saying that uh, Jan Ganman of Tagore and uh, uh, Vande, Vande Matram, Vande Matram uh, of Tagore of, are divergent in their imagination of space. I mean, if you could walk us through how this difference uh, plays out.
2: The okay so uh, so the first thing about uh, vandemataram is that it's he, written at a time where there's where bankim has no conception of india he's writing about bengal uh, and it is about bengal now uh, if you read the entire poem uh, as i have tried to show the poem is wonderfully utopian because it's talking about you know the the opening lines that we Say Shujalang, uh, Shufalang, right? It's kind of a land where there's standing crops. It's you know it's verdant with standing crops, etc. Now, if you see when it's being written, it's being written at the height of uh, sort of famine and uh, death in Bengal, and um, you know the famine start in India from the 1770s. It's the first uh, great famine, which kills off about 30 percent of. In the population of Bengal, and uh, it runs right through, you know, ending in, again, the last great famine, which was in Bengal, 43 to 45, which killed about 4 million people. So uh, so at one hand, Bunkim is performing a wonderfully utopian task. You see a wonderfully utopian spatial desire in Vandanaatram, which transforms this land of death and distress into this you know, green nurturing land. But at the same time, it uh, insists on using basically the Hindu conceptual vocabulary for imagining uh, what Bengal is. And this is kind of, since it was popularized as a part of the novel Anandamot, Anandamot is very clearly uh, imagining Bengal as a Hindu space. It is, uh, it starts off as a, As wanting to critique uh, colonial rule and uh, British, uh, I beg your pardon, uh, the rule of the Bengal Bengal Nawabs. But by the end of the novel, it becomes a critique of Muslim rule in Bengal, where there is a kind of acceptance of colonial rule. So that's a very specific kind of imagination. And by the 1870s, it was known that Muslims were the majority population in Bengal because of the censuses. So essentially what you see is uh, an evacuation of the majority community from this imagination. On the other hand, if you go to uh, Tagore, Tagore uh, you know, the, the first stanza which we sing as a national anthem is, Invested in the physical, political uh, geography, but the second stanza, which again, it's not sung very often recently. T.M. Krishna sung it, uh, in, uh, which is uh, wonderful uh, to listen to. He's talking about you know how the deity Bhagavidata, the deity which governs India, is a is a kind uh, is a kind of deity that welcomes all communities uh, into into this country. And um, so he's, he actually kind of uses, in some ways, the colonial enumerative modality to actually list out the various uh, communities, uh, the religious communities, and thinks about how they come together to basically build India, make it into an Indian community. It's a very different imagination from Bong Kim's, And I think that's what I've tried to show.
1: Uh, and uh, your chapter about patriotic lyric ends by saying that spirituality is part of both the uh, indian imagination the south asian imagination and also the british imagination uh, which which is in contrast to previous research which has called spirituality as part of the anti colonial movement only what does this entail to say they are part spirituality is part of both see uh, you
2: know it's there is this idea that, uh, you find this in, in uh, people like Partha Chatterjee, for instance, that you know there is the spiritual domain and the material domain, and the material domain is the part of the West, etc. Now, the spiritual domain, the way uh, Partha Chatterjee talks about it, comes is the site of nation making. That's pretty much uh, what the argument uh, goes, uh, and I think he's trying to make a distinction between the state and the nation here. Uh, but if you if you look at other other parts of the world, both metropolitan and colonial, you see uh, spiritual is very much an important resource for trying to lead a better life. Uh, so you have, for instance, in Latin America, you have liberation theology, where which combines Christianity with Marxism for social justice. You find this in the work and the writings of. Um, 17th century English uh, sects like the Ranters, the Quakers, the Marletonians and, and so on and so forth and uh, Diggers, and they are very much talking about social justice in Christian terms. So for instance this very famous phrase when Adam dealt an Span, who was then the gentleman you know, that there was no property relations in paradise, so there shouldn't be property relations in England. And uh, these are very much um, part of a scholarly scholarly work, like the work of, for instance, Christopher Hill of E.P. Thompson. And I think it, uh, it there's almost a kind of auto-orientalism in some of these scholars when they, you know, attribute spiritualism or spirituality only to, uh, the so-called East, and, and that's something I've tried to push back against, you know, and to think about religion not just as the opiate of the masses, which is often how you know Marx's very long uh, expression is condensed to religion is the opiate of the masses, but in that same line, he's, uh, Marx is talking about religion as the sire of the oppressed, the heart in a heartless world. and that's what I'm trying to get at here.. Yeah.
1: And uh, since we are uh, almost at the end of the podcast, um, what do you hope the readers take from the book? What do you hope changes in scholarship?
2: I uh, methodologically, I've tried to do two things. One is to break uh, what I hope is methodological nationalism. Right, it's not obvious or it's not uh, evident very much that we read British texts, English texts written by Britishers in conjunction with you know, English text written by Indians or, you know, a a text by uh, other vernacular writers. In my case, I've tried to talk about colonial text written in English, um, text written by British Indians both in English and and, uh, Bengali. And I hope this would uh, give people sort of a methodological handle on on this you know just a new way of doing literary studies that's that's one and uh, second i've also tried to think about decolonization by thinking about decolonization as this kind of utopian horizon right which and which i've talked about as a post colony rather than an indian nation uh, i also want to move away or hope people will read the uh, book and get this idea that um most of the work that deals with uh, anti-colonialism or, or what have you in the Indian context, they often assume a present discharge, even whether they want to or not, sort of India becomes the starting point of looking at uh, the colonial process. So, uh, and, and that's something I've tried to push back against a little, I hope. Yeah.
1: And uh, since this book was published now, um, two, three years ago, is it a good time to ask about your future projects?
2: (laughs) Sure, uh, I've gone back to the concept of landscape and I'm now working on a project on the colonial Himalaya, sort of the way in the, the colonial Himalaya was in a sense, remade according to certain ideas, you know, sort of, so I'm trying to map, the landscaping of the Himalaya in, in that sense. Um, you know, People trying to, uh, at some level, understand this as a space of the unknown and map it, the, the British and uh, Indians alongside. Uh, you know, so that contested nature through which uh, the Himalaya come to be seen, not just as a space of unknown that becomes known, but also as a space of intrigue because of, you know, um, uh, the spying missions that British India sends to Tibet um, as a space of thrill. They go climbing mountains and, you know, discover things as a place where you encounter nature in its kind of wilderness, everything from yaks and tigers to Yetis uh, to uh, nature controlled and produced. So, you know, tea plantations, tea plantations, those kinds of things. So basically thinking about the Himalaya as a series of tropes that are, that are, uh, produced and through which we continue to make sense of the Himalaya like it's a land of gods this is where the gods dwell this is where or this is where you know a certain kind of humans dwell like the hill station and so on and so forth so yeah that's that's what I'm working on now and hopefully we'll have something to talk about
1: well I hope to read more of your work and I wish you the best for your future projects thank you thank for- you